In this episode, I'm once again joined by Dr. Ian Wickramasekra, Berne Buddhist practitioner and associate professor of mindfulness-based transpersonal counseling at Naropa University. We learn how a mirror divination from a Tibetan Lama and a powerful lucid dream saw Ian travel to Sikkim in search of the monastery of his previous incarnation. Ian discusses the similarities between the Western tradition of hypnosis and the spiritual system of Dzogchen, and why he considers the view of Western hypnosis to be the best means to approach and apprehend Buddhist thought. Ian reveals why gurus are so often surrounded by high hypnotizable people, to what extent hypnotic language can be used by spiritual teachers to induce religious conversion and enhance their followers' devotion, and what the Dharma has to learn from Western hypnosis. Ian Wickramasekha, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, so happy to be back. So happy to be back, good sir. Thank you. This is the third podcast that you've appeared on, and each time you've left us with a cliffhanger, and this time... (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Well, we always think you were trained in hypnosis. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know... (laughs) And uh, we ended the last episode with some teasing about the further prophecies of Lama Dawa, uh, yeah. who, yeah. after having left Shambhala, you received some divination from this particular Lama, which had many interesting and far-reaching consequences, which we've only begun to, to touch yeah. on. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious about that. But before we get into that, I was also curious, we talked a lot about Tumo in yeah. the last episode, and your, how significant a practice that was for you. Yes, um, yeah. I'm also curious, another practice that, is heavily associated with Tibetan Buddhism and particularly with Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche, one of your main teachers, yeah. is dream yoga. Yeah, yes, yeah. When yeah. I'm curious, I don't think you've mentioned dream yoga yet in our conversations. I'm, yeah. I'm curious, what's your relationship to that practice? Okay, well, actually dream yoga uh, even ties together uh, some of the prophecy of Lama Dawa. <laughs> so I can tie those two together very well. And actually, I just realized uh, when um, a few days ago, thinking about when we'd be talking, uh, that there was a small part that I left out in, um, when I was talking about Lama Dawa. So I want to go back a little bit because uh, something very strange happened to me. In 1994, um, I was uh, uh, on my honeymoon with my first wife, and uh, we decided that we were going to go to uh, uh, Nepal for our uh, honeymoon. And uh, we went to trekking in the, uh, you know, Kumbu area to go and see uh, Tengbushe Monastery and other places and try to see if we could get close to uh, Everest Base Camp and just have a wonderful time. And uh, while we were camping at Tangbashe Monastery in uh, 1994, uh, a very strange thing happened to me, uh, which was that as I was going to sleep, the, there's a state of mind that uh, we call in psychology uh, uh, hypnagogic uh, phenomena, hypnagogic imagery. And just as I was, uh, I, since I've been young, I think I explained earlier, I, I had a lot of natural lucid dream phenomena. And one of my favorite things to do still to this day is to observe that experience of, you know, here comes the dream theater is the way I thought of it as a child, like, oh, here come the dreams, you know? And, uh, and I like to 
try to stay as awake and vivid just to kind of see uh, what that's about. Um, and so I was doing that uh, as I often have uh, since I was very young. Uh, and then something that never happened before <laughs> happened then, which was that all of a sudden, uh, this gigantic booming voice came into that state. You know, I was clearly in the state of falling asleep to myself and uh, felt like it was about to kind of take over. But before that happened, all of a sudden, this voice just jumped in there and goes, and this laughter was just filling uh, the whole of what seemed like this strange uh, infinite space, you know, and it just felt like, uh, uh, I don't know, like some magnificent uh, fire lord or demon or something. It's just amazingly powerful. Uh, just fill my whole being. And then it, it just said a few things. Uh, Tantriana Lama Guru, Tantriana Lama Guru, Tantriana Lama Guru. <laughs> I was like, well, oh my God, you know. And then, uh, ironically, after that, then I fell asleep, you know. Um, and then I woke up uh, in the morning, and as I often do, I journaled, you know, what it had said, and really didn't know anything about what it had said to me. Um, and so that actually was something that I had asked. Uh, Lama Dawa, I guess in 1996, a few years later, what was that? <laughs> what was this thing, you know? And it, as part of his divination, then he told me the name of uh, the uh, guardian that had come to me there. Uh, and then also he told me uh, who I had been in a previous life. Uh, his name was Ajay Jigme Dorje. And I had lived in a monastery in Sikkim. And um, so at the time, I was more focused on the other question I'd asked him, which is, you know, who should be my teacher, you know? And, uh, and he had guided me uh, to, uh, the, he couldn't tell me the name of my teacher, but my teacher would be someone like Namki Norbu Rinpoche. And so then I went to go and, and meet him. Um, and I discover there's all the stuff about dream yoga that he is really well known for. And actually I had known that about him before. Um, and I'd even had a few of his books and then, um, but he wasn't coming around at the time that um, uh, Lama Dawa Chodrak had given me this advice. Um, so um, I went uh, then to go to study with Tenzin Wangyal and he was teaching a dream yoga retreat and this was in August of 2001 and I went and um, this teachings immediately became very understandable and powerful to me so like during that first retreat I had with Tenzin Wangyal I had this really amazing series of uh, dreams every night during that retreat I was just hoping I would have like maybe one lucid dream during that time, but uh, actually every night I had one. And then that practice became uh, even more powerful to me. And um, hmm. so during the next several years while I was doing, um, eh, studying the Tumo and um, uh, other Dzogchen uh, practices with uh, 
uh, Tenzin Wang Gyal and uh, Kampo Yungdrung Rinpoche. Uh, then uh, I kept, you know, having these lucid dream experiences. And uh, around this time, the internet had become like pretty good, you know. And uh, so something occurred to me, I was like, did he just make that stuff up about uh, I was a monk in Sikkim? You know, I was like, this his advice had been really good, but he was very specific. He's, he told me my name and he told me the monastery that I had, you know, lived in. It was called uh, Trikardashi Ding. And uh, I was like, uh, I'd never heard this before. And so I just put it in and I go there and sure enough, there is a Trikardashi Ding. It's actually one of the main uh, monasteries of Sikkim. Um, and it has this really wonderful festival of uh, this holy sacred water that keeps being produced from a stupa there. And uh, I was like, oh, wow, I was reading all about this. And uh, as I looked at the uh, monastery pictures, I started to have this very strange uh, feeling like, oh, I, you know, this looks like I've I'm seeing it again, you know, and uh, I was like, oh, well, that's, you know, I'm a, uh, you know, a psychologist. So I started thinking, oh, you know, this is maybe just expectancy and, you know, whatever is very beautiful and, but it does exist, you know, it's like, that's, that's kind of cool. Uh, and I went to bed that night and uh, when I uh, woke up in my dreams, as I am gifted to sometimes, uh, I uh, was in a room, it was just all wooden. It's actually a bit like the room you're in. Everything was wood, except you're in boat. <laughs> but everything was wood. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. And there was barely anything in there. Just, I was in a room, just everything was wood. And uh, I uh, went over to uh, a mirror and started to comb my hair. And then a very strange thing began to happen, which was all my hair started to fall out. I was like, oh no, I have to admit it's one of these things I'm attached to in life, you know? <laughs> I've enjoyed my hair. I admit it, I'm very attached to it. And it all started falling out. I was like, oh my God, what's going on? I'm losing all my, all my hair falling out. And then all of a sudden, as I looked in the mirror, it struck me. I had been overlooking the fact that it wasn't my face. And also I was wearing glasses. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, my identity changed. I realized uh, that it was not uh, my daytime self of Ian. This was J. Jigme Dorje. I was J. Jigme Dorje. And uh, around that time I became fully lucid and one of the advices that uh, Tenzin Wangkyao give to me and all the students uh, is um, if you uh, are in a lucid dream and fully lucid <clears throat> and in a place where uh, you feel this could be good for your spiritual advancement, uh, you should go and try to ask the figures of the dream for teachings. And so I'm in a monastery. I'll go find my teacher. So then I went around and started talking to various monks and asking, you know, where was the guru? And then I go to where the guru 
was. And it was very strange because there were uh, uh, many uh, people as well as monks surrounding uh, the teacher. And uh, they were all like kind of surrounding him and standing in a line that was kind of radiating out, like maybe it was like six lines and he's in the center of it and everyone is just like packed in around you know and and I waited in, in this line and I got uh I got about maybe I don't know four people away from him when uh he's just kind of like turning from one person to the next and then next and the next and then he sort of turned and looked at me in a very strange way like, are you really there? Or are you really not there? And I was like, yes, I'm really here, you know? And uh, then he kind of paused for that and, and talked to me immediately. Uh, and then the sad thing is, I don't really remember too much of what he said, but I gathered that uh, what he did was he was giving me some kind of uh, blessing or empowerment. And then uh, I got very excited and then uh, the dream end and then I wrote all this down. Um, so then I started to think maybe really there was, I was monk, you know, in this uh, monastery. And I kind of had it in my head that I wanted to continue doing the lucid dreaming practices and following the way that Tenzin Wangyal uh, had taught me. And I really wanted to see, you know, was there uh, something um, more for me in this? Um, and uh, a few years ago, um, let's see, what year was, maybe it was 2018. Yeah, 2018, uh, my university that I teach uh, transpersonal counseling at, uh, we also had this wonderful Bhutan studies program because, you know, Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who um, founded Naropa University, he was a great drinking friend of the king of Bhutan, <laughs> you know, and uh, the queen loved him very much too. And uh, he was very, very beloved by them. Also, uh, you know, treasured spiritual friend uh, and, uh, you know, I guess uh, mutual students uh, with Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche, who was also beloved by them, uh, the royalty of uh, you know, king and queen of Bhutan. And, um, so when they wanted to start the country's first counseling program, because they didn't have one, you know, all the people had to go to India, uh, but they had it in mind that they wanted to have an indigenous counseling, you know, that really integrate all of their wisdom. And like, you know, Bhutan is a place where like a third of the people are just doing Chud practice as, you know, like a bowling club, <laughs> you know, it's like they have this thing called the Tarayana, foundation and like over I think it's something someone told me about a third of people in Bhutan they go to this and every little village that I went to many times I would hear the people gathering and doing shed practice and so this place is just still wild and wonderful and uh, really they want they wanted uh, counseling there so they could they have problems like everyone else that have a, particularly substance abuse has become difficult and they just start to have in the last 15 years or so, the difficulties with suicide in their youth. And so they wanted to bring uh, counseling and they wanted it to be a Bhutanese, uh, indigenous uh, and Buddhist uh, form of counseling. So they asked uh, Naropa University, will you help us to design this program and, and help to teach? 
So uh, I was fortunate in, I think that was 2018, yeah, uh, that I got to be the first person along with uh, another few colleagues of mine to go over there and teach the first class of uh, indigenous Bhutanese counselors. So I'm over there and it's so wonderful. And, uh, you know, people in Bhutan are so loving and open. Uh, even they wanted, invited me to wear their, you know, traditional clothes, which are actually quite wonderful. And so I bought like four go now. And I really, this what very wonderful and beautiful to wear and extremely practical. You can put like, like a whole laptop inside this thing. It's really nice, you know, and uh, I just loved it, the people there. And uh, suddenly it occurred to me while I was there, how close I was to Sikkim. Because <laughs> I was in a part of Bhutan called the Samsi, and just across the border was India. And I thought, my God, I had probably just maybe uh, a day or half a day's, uh, you know, ride in the car. I don't know how I would do it, <clears throat> but maybe I'll ask my friends. And so I asked uh, one of my friends there, you know. Uh, had they ever heard of Tashi Ding Monastery? And oh, yes, a Tashi Ding. Yes, this is the most sacred monastery in Sikkim. You must go. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wonderful. And also, you must go to Gong Talk and see, uh, you know, the monastery of the Karmapa. And uh, you must go there. And uh, they told me some other places to go and uh, arrange for a driver. Uh, they said, here, you. There is a very good driver from India. He is very crazy. He will take you there. And I was like, what do you mean he's very crazy? Oh, he's a very good driver. You will, you will see. I was like, okay. Because uh, already I had been driving in Bhutan and driving in Bhutan, you know, um, particularly uh, from uh, Timpu, the capital, to Samsi in the you know, kind of south, uh, west of the country, that was some dicey roads. And so I had a feeling they were saying I was about to go on some very scary roads. And they were correct. <laughs> they were very correct. Oh, my Lord. Uh, so uh, me and my uh, colleague, we get uh, in the car and we meet a very nice Indian man. And he seems like really, really hyper, you know, and uh, but very, very friendly and likes to sing and uh, chew betel nuts and uh, is really a very hyper man, you know, and um, but a lot of I felt it was good energy. So we, we go driving off and get a special permits and then arrive in Gong Talk and see Rumteka Monastery, the seat of the Karmapas. So wonderful. And um, I really loved uh, that visit. And in particular, uh, there was a banner uh, that was erected by the monks, because unfortunately the Karmapa cannot, uh, at least as when I was there, was not able to return to room tech. So because uh, of a difficulty between China and India, I understand, I don't really understand that, but he can't go to his own monastery. But the monks have sayings of him on this gigantic uh, brocades around everywhere and tarps and things uh, so that it feels like he's there. And one of the quotes uh, was just amazing, uh, beautiful Rime philosophy saying that, you know, all the practitioners of Nyingma, Galukpa, Sakya, you know, and even it says, even the bone, we are all, you know, 
together in our understanding of the Dharma. And he says that to, uh, to exclude one is bad. You know, it was really a, a very direct proclamation that even Bun was a, a, a part of this tradition of the Dharma. And I loved that because that had actually been one of the main things that had made me worry about Bun many years earlier. Not, not by then, but uh, it was wonderful to see. And also the colleague I was with was a, a devotee of uh, Karma Kaju. And so <laughs> this was written there by, <laughs> you know, Karmapa. And I said, see, I told you. <laughs> the bone is quite good. It's not straight into the bone. The bone is a good thing to stray into. You should be so lucky. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, so we exceed there. And then uh, as we're leaving that monastery uh, in the car with the wonderful Indian man, uh, suddenly it happened again. Uh, as we were, I was not even in the hypnagogic state to my knowledge, but all of a sudden I heard that laughter again. <laughs> and this is a very strange thing to explain because uh, how this laughter occurs, I don't really know. It's not like other hallucinations I have had. It felt more like some space was being brought to me rather than it was in the space I normally occupy even the transpersonal one. This felt very different. Uh, and uh, at that time, uh, the driver told us that he was going to take us via a route that would be very scary roads. And he was not kidding. And we ended up uh, going along these roads that, uh, that I, honestly, they didn't seem much wider than a path that I would normally hike in the in the Rockies, you know, uh, going up a uh, fourteen thousand foot mountains, and the drop offs on either side, sometimes, uh, I mean, on one side would be you know more than I'm sure a thousand feet, maybe much much more. I don't know. And this guy was so crazy. Like uh, I would just see what we were about to do, and I was like oh, you must be planning to turn around. And he'd just actually accelerate the car. And he'd just take us along this thing. And even once, like, he could see, like, how crazy we were in the, in the car with him. And then he said, here, why don't you watch this? And he stopped the car, opened the door, and leaned out, <laughs> looking down. <laughs> and that, that was actually the biggest drop-off. I don't know, that must have been more than 1,000 for sure. And then took, took his foot and stick out. <laughs> Everything is just very crazy, man. Uh, and uh, so now I started to think, you know, maybe this laughter, this was like warning, you know, <laughs> like maybe I shouldn't be doing this or something. Uh, and then we ended up going to um, this place in Sikkim to spend the night that uh, is a very holy site in the Hindu tradition for uh, Lord Shiva. They have the most gigantic uh, statue of Lord Shiva there. It's really amazing. And we uh, just spontaneously arrived at a time when uh, puja was going on. And actually, they let us join. So that was very nice. And in the following morning, um, we heard that uh, uh, there had been a huge landslide and uh, that there would be no way to get the Tashi Ding. And so, <laughs> so I didn't actually get to go. 
but uh, it's definitely on my list because I really want to see someday. I have some feeling, uh, another thing that uh, Lama Dawa had told me was there was an enigma uh, Northern Treasures tradition that at some point I should do this practice. And so I'm feeling it's probably connected to Tachi Ding. I think it's called the yeah, five branches or something like this. So many branches. <laughs> it's definitely Dzogchen, I guess. Uh, but uh, at any rate, so that's, uh, <laughs> that's the, the crazy part of the uh, uh, <laughs> teachings and uh, predictions I got from uh, Lama Dawa. In general, um, what I have found though is that him guiding me to Tenzin Wangyo and Kenpo Yungjun Rinpoche was uh, just an amazingly uh, good fit. And in fact, in retrospect, one of the things that I find so interesting about that prediction was uh, how not only how accurate it was, but how devoid of any uh, attachment it was in that, uh, I guess he could have just told me that I was, that he was supposed to be my teacher, you know? <laughs> it would be like, you know, uh, you know, people, you know, he could have done such a thing, you know? Uh, but actually he was really committed to actually helping me to find my way to the right teacher. And so I'm very grateful uh, to Lama Dawa Chodrak, who passed away a few years ago. And uh, on two other occasions in my life, I was fortunate enough to do some other predictions with him. He's a really amazing uh, man, uh, student of Dilgo Kensei and Dajum Rinpoche and many others. Um, but at any rate, um, the, this fit is really amazing because of the fact that this whole time that I was you know, beginning to learn about Buddhism from you know, the basic levels of Hinayana practice in Shambhala and Mahayana practice in Shambhala, and then studying now more with, you know, we think of Vajrayana, Dzogchen, and uh, mostly in Bun, and some Enigma, but mostly in Bun. I have also been developing as a psychologist and also in a very remarkable <laughs> lineage of hypnosis. Uh, and so, for instance, uh, we talked about Dan Brown earlier. I first met Dan Brown, I think, uh, as a boy, because uh, of my dad knew him, you know? And uh, I think maybe I met sometime in the 1970s, you know, I was at hypnosis conference where Dan Brown and my dad were at the Society for Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis. And then later when I started taking hypnosis teachings myself uh, through the Society of Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis, I also ran into Dan again. But I had no idea that Dan was actually into uh, the Dharma at all, and that uh, he had been, you know, simultaneously as well as me, uh, going way back. Even when he was taking his uh, doctorate, uh, he also he also took Sanskrit training <laughs> and uh, to study Tibetan. You know, it's a really amazing man. You know, uh, I guess they don't have any dummies at Harvard, right? But yeah, Dan is uh, really amazing, you know, uh, really worthy of, I think, uh, people to go and study with. And unfortunately, um, it was not until maybe uh, 2017 that I became aware that Dan had been studying both Dharma and hypnosis, because uh, as he got more into Dharma, he sort of stepped back from the 
hypnosis community a bit, so I didn't see him at many meetings. And I think it was maybe sometime around 2000 or something that my dad told me he was into Buddhism. And so I had been meaning to have some discussion with him. But just never, I was at the same meeting that he was at where I could talk, but we have many close mutual friends uh, in the hypnosis community. And this was around the time that I had really begun to try and integrate uh, the best wisdom that I've received in the hypnosis community with the best wisdom that I have received in uh, studying Buddhism in Bonn. And it's a remarkable, I, I honestly think that personally there is no better way of studying uh, the integration of Western thought with, uh, um, you know, uh, studying the Dharma, uh, then from the perspective of hypnosis. Uh, the perspective of hypnosis actually is uh, the tradition that started psychology, you know, without uh, Mesmer playing around with some magnets <laughs> in, uh, you know, 18, uh, I'm sorry, in 1780s, <clears throat> this kind of thing. Um, I don't think we would have psychology the same way, uh, but he did and uh, learned a lot about uh, what, you know, people came to call the talking cure. Um, so I really became very interested. Uh, I think a lot of times if you go back to the origin of a particular wisdom tradition, you will find some of the most potent things. And, and so I guess I've kind of done that in both traditions, you know, and <laughs> Bon and maybe argument to be one of the oldest Dzogchen traditions. Uh, and uh, hypnosis is really the, the, the phenomena that started all of this discussion. Even all these words that we use in discussing the Dharma, like ego, this kind of thing, uh, they are invented in the context of hypnotic phenomena. Like uh, the reason the word ego exists is because uh, Freud and others were attempting to uh, understand how a person in a state of hypnosis could have access to information that seemed outside of their conscious mind. And so even the, the invention of the study uh, of the unconscious mind in psychoanalysis and uh, gestalt psychology before, uh, all of this was in relationship to hypnotic phenomena. This is really the phenomena around which uh, all the psychoanalysis was invented, even the concept of transference was invented to uh, understand why people are hypnotizable. Uh, there was a, a, a feeling that people were uh, responding to unconscious phenomena uh, in which they would relate the hypnotist as if they were their parent. So uh, I don't know whether, <laughs> I don't, actually our research shows that there is some transference phenomenon hypnosis, but it's not the strongest part of it. So there is maybe something of that. Um, but at uh, any rate, so, I like very much, uh, there are some really uh, startling um, similarities in the methods of hypnosis and Dzogchen, and some very startling uh, um, similarities in the psychophysiology, like what happens when you do. And then finally, the philosophy of mind are very similar. And you really could not find other traditions of research or even clinical theory um, in which you will find these same three um, correspondences. And so that's really why 
uh, I've you know, really have done a lot of writing on these things. Um, and I'll just mention, you know, briefly, methods are very similar in that, uh, particularly in uh, Zogchan and Vajrayana, there's this, you know, really powerful relationship you have with the guru. And, you know, there's relationship in all Dharma stuff, but particularly it becomes very powerful, much more powerful relationship in Dzogchen and uh, it's certainly in uh, any Vajrayana thing. Um, and it's very remarkable, like, why is this? And there's all of this emphasis on teaching uh, advanced meditations that often involve uh, visual imagery and uh, also, you know, psychophysiological uh, transformations. And uh, you would not find any other area of psychology where this is done uh, for as long and where there's much knowledge and sciences than hypnosis. So we've been uh, first, like I think real hypnosis book, you know, for my mind that uh, really approaches it as a psychological phenomenon was written in 1819 by Abe Faria, you know, his wonderful, uh, crazy uh, Eurasian guy like me. <laughs> he's from the island of Goa, you know, and also he had Portuguese heritage. Um, you know, Goa's you know, island off, you know, uh, uh, India, more renowned for parties, I think, these days than Abe Faria. But I think Abe Faria first. Uh, he is a wonderful man. And he wrote this wonderful book on the causes of lucid sleep in 1819. It's very uh, amazing book. He realized that this was a psychological phenomenon. Uh, it's a really amazing man. Um, at any rate, so... Uh, the methods are very similar in that we do a lot of this kind of work in hypnosis as well. Um, also, if you ask people about their experiences, uh, as I have done uh, in several studies and continuing to do, uh, you will find that people's uh, experience of the state of uh, hypnosis and different hypnotic uh, experiences are similar to experiences that people have in Vajrayana and Dzogchen. Uh, so for instance, the experience of chill meditation is very similar in many aspects of hypnosis and that there's a kind of selfless kind of experience and a kind of feeling of expansiveness that we often can get in certain forms of hypnosis. Um, and so at any rate, there's similarities in the methods, uh, particularly the relationship between the student and teacher uh, is very similar in many aspects to the relationship we have in, uh, between hypnotist and you know, hypnotic subject, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, also the understanding of the role of the teacher is also very similar in both traditions in that uh, it's always understood, you know, in essence that, you know, like I always say to my students that uh, the hypnosis that I am, uh, I am teaching you is not even half as powerful as the hypnosis you are learning. <laughs> you know, so it's really more about um, helping people to connect uh, with what is already existing. And that has to do a lot with the view of hypnosis uh, that I maintain uh, in that um, probably everyone has uh, fantastic levels of hypnotic ability, but people do uh, vary in their ability to access it. And it's very much like the view of Dzogchen about the nature of mind. Everyone has 
but you know, some people a little more cloudy on a given day. You know, if they said like a nature of mind is like the sun in the sky, it is there all the time, even at night and even when clouds come across. Um, and that's like hypnotic ability. It's very, very similar, you know, and uh, that it's a spontaneous thing. We don't particularly need to uh, hypnotize people so much as really bring them into that realm uh, through a, basically a kind of pointing out, <laughs> you know, a kind of a pointing out procedure. Uh, it relies traditionally more on the phenomenon of relaxation, uh, but uh, actually also in uh, hypnosis, we already uh, started uh, investigating other arousal states as well. So, so we get a little closer to, you know, Kundalini and Jumo kind of energies when we, uh, but mostly the work we do is in the lower arousal states. Um, anyway, so the methods are very similar. Uh, and then also we know from the few studies that we do have of Dzogchen related things, and also from, you know, Lord knows, uh, more than to probably uh, 5,000 mindfulness meditation uh, studies of its psychophysiology. Some of which were early ones, even done by Dan Brown, by the way, very interesting. And he's now doing more. And actually, I, I heard even he's doing uh, preparing a direct study of Dzogchen meditation. Um, but we'd find a similar psychophysiology, you know, that the uh, body's reactions to these meditations. Uh, very similar to states of hypnosis. And so uh, interior cingulate is very much involved uh, and also alteration of the default mode network. Now, what's so interesting about that is that is seems to be the neuromatrix that creates the self. That, you know, this feeling that is I, Ian, who is drinking this ginger tea. Mm. Uh, and it is I who am enjoying it in this kind of double uh, reflection. It's a very strange thing, you know, the illusion itself, because there is the experience and then there is somehow someone who's experiencing it. So you have to create this double self in order to have one. It takes, it takes, actually I've heard this said in another philosophical context, it takes two to know one. This is usually meant in an empathic context, you know, like a counselor and a, uh, you know, a client. But actually, even at the subtlest level, it does take two to know one. Except if, right, then we are in the great perfection, then I guess somehow uh, this illusion itself is, uh, like a cloud to dissolve, you know, and then uh, then there is just direct experience without reference. But you know, most of us we're doing this thing. Now, how this relates to the um, the psychophysiology is that the neuro matrix is what is creating this double self, so to speak. Um, it also creates uh, quite lovingly representations of everyone. So like you know, we have spent enough time together, uh, we have created you know default mode network states of one another and everyone else that you know and experience. And we have these representations in our mind of other people. So that, you know, you can actually even imagine what it would be to like to talk to someone about something. And sometimes it's kind of fun to do that, like to have a conversation with someone before you see them and then see how accurate that was. 
And a lot of times it's not <laughs> for me, but sometimes it is, you know, it was fun. Uh, we have these inner uh, representations of people. And uh, one of those, or at least two, uh, you know, is us. Um, a little bit later, I'll get into uh, this polypsychic phenomena that uh, has to do with something else. But uh, we'll just say for now, at least two are us. So it's theoretically should be more than that. Um, any rate, uh, and so uh, as we like really uh, come to understand this, it's interesting because we know from studies of long-term meditators that one of the signs of uh, their progress is reductions in the uh, magnitude of the default mode network and its activity. And actually, you know, even uh, a very few um, conditions, there can be an actual like complete blockade of the default mode network. Uh, that is seen in ayahuasca actually, <laughs> where people can enter this kind of selfless uh, experience and then no default mode network activity are very dysregulated, I guess. Um, and the same kind of thing is seen in hypnosis. So um, I'm thinking now, you know, that what these things share is that they alter our experience of self. And this becomes very useful in making spiritual progress to develop less grasping on the self. Just by altering the self, you make a lot of insights into its uh, illusory qualities. And now here we get to the last area of similarity, which is the view. Like one of the most astounding things about the view of hypnosis and the view of Dzogchen is how similar they are around what causes suffering and also uh, the nature of mind in that uh, there is no way to study hypnosis without realizing directly and experientially, just as if you're looking at Togal phenomena, uh, that most of our experience is a dream. It really is. And, it, you know, and it's very practical. Like hypnosis is so practical. If, knowing that most of life is a dream, great. Why not make it more interesting and better? So uh, I've been practicing for such a long time i first my dad taught me since i was 10 uh and my mom taught me too she was a psychiatric nurse <clears throat> and so i used to get rid of headaches when i had was 10 I used to have migraines but uh ever since then uh you know i really fell in love with music and so i learned how to uh, have like perfect quality music in my head and so a lot of times i have a song playing around whatever experience I have, you know, it's like my inner stereo or something. Uh, and sometimes it's a new song that I never heard before. And then I've become like musician. Uh, that's been fun. Mostly I hear goth music when, when that's going on and strange uh, uh, like rhythmic things that make a primitive industrial music like uh, Einstein's and the Neubotten, if you ever heard. Uh, and uh, but yeah, the view of hypnosis is that uh, because um, we are living in a dreamlike experience, there is no suffering that you can experience that you cannot work with. You know, and uh, a lot of times, you know, people think, you know, particularly I work in an area where people are really rooted wholly in duality and suffering a huge amount. Uh, I work in the area of chronic pain. So the people who have like back pain and headaches like I did, 
And they believe that because their body is damaged in some way, that they must experience pain. And they take huge amounts of opiates, uh, which can be good for short periods of time, but rarely is good in the long run. Long-term efficacy of opiates is very small. Uh, and really people just get addicted and then not even getting the benefit. And worse yet, now they have <laughs> the dependency and addiction issues and uh, they really make for a horrible life, constipation, even terrible, and terrible. Um, and so they think uh, they're just screwed and they become very suicidal. They're the second most uh, suicidal population in all of uh, clinical psych. And so uh, what I say is you don't live in reality. You live in an experience of reality and I'm gonna show you how to mess with it. <laughs> and so I teach them all these techniques of hypnosis so they can alter their reality. And I can show them very easily. You, your back is a hurting. Why don't you just try focusing on another part of your body and see what happens? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Why don't you go deep into the experience of hypnosis? And you can learn to alter all of your bodily sensations. And even I don't demand anyone I mean, like a good uh, teacher, I, I, te I focus on let your experience teach you, just like a Buddha say, uh, come and see. I don't require anyone uh, to believe me. And so those who are skeptical, then I give the scientific articles. I give them, here, here you will see exactly how the somatosensory cortex is altered by the use of hypnosis. And that actually uh, anyone can do this. But you have to try. This you were not. I cannot beam this into you magically. You must learn this, and uh, I will do my best to be a good teacher to you. But ultimately, hypnosis I teach you is not as powerful as that which you learn. And so I have literally liberated people from these nightmares of this duality of believing that the body self completely determines all of our experiences and sensations. Uh, and so in this way. It's a dramatic illustration of the dreamlike nature of our self experiences, but also of uh, the illusion of the world. And right around this time, people start to begin realizing how much the phenomena of attention and not just involved in our self experiences, but in our experiences of other people and how things like duality are completely altering uh, our perception of what other people told us. It's like, what are these, you know, funny things, if you ever listen to, you know, uh, recording of, you know, what you said to someone, uh, and then uh, they tell you what they heard, there's sometimes some really startling differences. And a lot of times they have to do with this way that duality polarizes statements, like you say something that was meant to be more nuanced, and then it's received as if you made this extreme statement. And then also I do the same. Someone says something beautiful and nuanced and then I, I heard like, oh, how can you maintain such a strong view? And then to learn about, uh, you know, just how everything that uh, we are doing in life is involved with our mind. Uh, and that even uh, we know, for instance, uh, when a person uh, imagines uh, a hypnotic visual hallucination, this is classic experiences done by Steve Coslin. Uh, at, uh, they believe at Columbia, where he asked people to um, 
imagine uh, a visual stimuli. I'll just make it a little bit easy, easier to describe this way than the actual stimuli. Uh, he asked people to imagine a particular visual stimuli after having shown it to them. So first he, he, he shows the visual stimuli to them and then the measure brain reaction. And then afterwards uh, in a hypnotic state, he asked them to imagine it. And the interesting thing was there is no difference between uh, the way the brain was generating the hallucination versus receiving stimulation. And so this is an inherently inherent problem, um, <clears throat> opportunity and problem <laughs> in studying perception and that actually uh, all perception is creative. You know, it is uh, this experience that we're having right now, we don't realize actually how much we are the creator of it. I, and even the concept of we are, um, that also is a creation. We are the crea the created, creating the creation. It's one illusion stacked upon another. Uh, and there's very, you know, uh, empirically grounded ways of discussing this uh, illusion of self and illusion of the world in hypnosis that I love. And that's the main reason why I have written these articles lately trying to get people in the hypnosis community to become aware of what's going on in Dzogchen in particular, uh, because uh, there are way more advanced phenomena, you know, after so many thousand years of Dzogchen practice, uh, there are way more, you know, uh, you know, people are just starting to do this, like a Dan Brown and also uh, Richard Davidson did some studies and long time ago, uh, Herbert Benton did studies, and then there was some studies in France and other places. Uh, and so this is starting to happen. Uh, and some of the right people are doing it, like uh, Dan Brown, of course. But it is to the tradition of hypnosis that I think this phenomenon is best uh, used to compare and to understand. And eventually, uh, we was talking about this a little bit, uh, if we could get you know someone who was both realized uh, Dzogchen uh, teacher and fully authorized to teach uh, all aspects of it, which, you know, maybe Dan Brown, he was given all of the main uh, terma text of Bond. Maybe that will be him. I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> but someday we will have this person who can, I think, possibly maybe do some integration of hypnotic teachings, has fully received all the teachings of hypnosis, which, by the way, I must say there are more traditions of hypnosis than you could learn in one lifetime. Uh, and, um, you know, certainly in the Bund tradition, there's also that too. Um, there are so many traditions of uh, clinical traditions of hypnosis. It's an equally daunting field to enter in many ways uh, in that you could spend your whole life just doing one of these things. And to imagine doing both, uh, they have to be uh, very motivated and a little crazy, I think, but I, I am both of those things. <laughs> so I'm going as far as I can. Uh, I, and I'm happy that Dan Brown is there too, doing this even before me. So wonderful. Um, anyway, so I, I really felt like this is uh, my life's work is to try and build these bridges of understanding so that we can validate these ideas scientifically of Dzogchen and bring more people become interested in this and realize that actually what this awful early, you know, scholars of, uh, you know, Buddhism thought there was a very 
uh, uncouth philosophy, you know, because they neglect maybe some of the ideas, you know, in sexual practice or something, karma mudra stuff, uh, thought like it was perversion of Buddhism, but actually this was like the real diamond, you know, like in the Vajrayana they say, this is really the diamond. And I think the best way of appreciating this diamond from a Western context is through the knowledge of hypnosis, because we have many, many theories in hypnosis, which uh, you needn't go into here, like a neo-dissociation and ego state therapy and ego state theory that really uh, have the same observation that the self is a created illusion. Uh, and that um, because of this, there is the opportunity to alter the self uh, and that we needn't uh, think of any form of suffering as uh, permanent for this reason. Just alter the self, you know, alter the self who is suffering. And uh, it's wonderful self can change and grow and uh but what we don't have in hypnosis is a way of understanding like how do you get rid of this game it's more about how do we organize and play with illusion which is a real wisdom too there's no doubt about that uh, the ability to play with the dream and uh enjoy it more that also is a wisdom that's a good but transcending that uh we don't really have a way of thinking of that in hypnosis. Um, although, I don't know, maybe you just, you know, spend enough time in there. It happens spontaneously from a Dzogchen perspective, I guess. Um, but uh, I don't know. At this this point, uh, not too many people thinking about that. I'll be interested to see what Dan Brown has to say. <laughs> maybe he will have some other way of thinking of this. Uh, he certainly has written enough in the hypnosis and uh, bond tradition to um, it should be listened to, <laughs> at least I will. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so that's kind of where I'm at these days. You know, I'm doing more child research. Uh, I have uh, hopes to do some uh, to receive permission to do Togal uh, research with people's experiences in Togal. Those are the two main things I'm very interested in uh, following up on. And then I like to keep doing my lucid dreaming practice and other things. Um, uh, remembering uh, earlier you was uh, talking about, um, you know, recently I got a COVID-19 and that also has become very powerful uh, teaching to me, this uh, wonderful COVID-19, you know. Well, I'd like to ask you about that, but perhaps a couple of questions about the hypnosis talk chamber. Yeah. And you gave, I think, there a very excellent summary of what you've written about in your very recent paper, hypnotic like aspects of the tradition of Tsokchen meditation as a 2020 paper. Another one of your papers that had this crossover is the 2004 paper, the Kalyanamitra and the Client-Centered Psychotherapist. Yes. To quote from that, much of what makes for a good Kalyanamitra also makes for a good psychotherapist. One of the most important implications at this point is that if it helps construct a bridge of understanding between psychotherapy and Buddhism, it helps demystify many of the misconceptions about Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism, that might normally bias our ability to properly understand its value. Vajrayana employs many of the same basic goals and means as psychotherapy. Vajrayana can thus be enriched by drawing from concepts in psychotherapy to help its students understand the nature of Buddhist teachings. I'm, I'm interested uh, there, you talked already a little bit about some of the things that psychology could draw or could be informed by, from the Dzogchen view. I'm curious about the other direction that you're pointing to here. In what ways do you see 
the tradition of hypnosis, for instance, or in this context, client-centered psychotherapy, informing Madriana. And also I was interested in which misconceptions did you have in mind there about Madriana that an understanding through this lens might, uh, might help us see more clearly? Okay, um, that's wonderful questions. Thank you, oh my goodness. Yeah, I think about this stuff a lot and it's wonderful to receive these questions. So two phenomena come to mind immediately. In terms of uh, things that people uh, misunderstand about Vajrayana, I feel like um, one of the strange things that I have noticed, but also I said, I should say that I use the word strange in a joyful way. <laughs> it's a how wonderful and strange. So one of the strange things I've noticed about, uh, particularly taking teachings in Vajrayana and Dzogchen is how many high hypnotizables are around, you know? Like ordinarily people with high hypnotic ability, you know, they comprise, you know, somewhere between 15 and 25% of the general population. There's some evidence that that is increasing, like the percentage of people who have a high hypnotic ability, which by the way is a genetically, partly genetically determined trait that can be trained and this kind of thing. Um, and everyone has this ability, but some people are more gifted than others, even without much training at all. Uh, they have uh, you know, more connection to the nature of mind or something. Uh, and so um, what I notice is that when I'm in Vajrayana, and Dzogchen teaching context, like everyone is like me, high hypnotizable. I'm high hypnotizable. I love it. It is a wonderful. When you say high hypnotizable, you mean yeah. susceptible to, to no, or, or well, susceptible, maybe it's not quite the right word. Uh, ah, you're getting it. That's yeah, true. Susceptible to hypnosis in that case. That's sometimes I think seen as a weakness, the sign of a weak mind. Let's say that's yeah. able to be uh, overtaken, influenced, an influenceable mind, and I perhaps betrayed that even with the use of the word susceptible, but you're talking about it as a gift. That seems a little uh, unusual. Yes, yes. And this has to do with the, the terrible fact that even though hypnosis created the, the uh, context in which psychology was created and advanced its methods uh, and still used to this day, uh, alas, uh, most people are still uh, laboring under the delusion that it's about suggestibility. Um, and I understand because th there's so much focus on the concept of hypnotic suggestion. And we think the suggestion is somehow skillfully applied, you know, as a skillful means, and, you know, that somehow this uh, uh, overcome, you know, the person. And it's complete bullshit. <laughs> it's completely you know, this idea that, you know, hypnotist is this wise and powerful person. A lot of people have that experience in hypnosis, you know, that uh, yeah, hypnotist is amazingly powerful and wise person, this kind of thing. Uh, Michael Nash at uh, uh, University of Tennessee, he did all this research showing that, that some, some, not all people have that feeling of idealism and hypnosis, uh, but some people do. Uh, but the truth is that if you look at the actual scientific research, uh, the phenomena suggestion is not very predictive of uh, the experience of hypnosis. So in fact, you can measure people's suggestibility and you know, what we might think of as gullibility. So 
there are some people that are more suggestible and gullible than others. And if you enter their home, they'll have George Foreman grill and uh, lots of products from the QVC home shopping network and things like that. Uh, and you might think that those people would be the best at hypnosis. They actually are no better than anyone else. Uh, we, we've done more than a thousand studies looking at uh, suggestion outside of hypnosis and will it be predictive of responsiveness to hypnosis. And in almost all of those studies, there was no correlation even at all. Not even like a few times there have been very small correlations, but the uh, vast majority of this show no correlation at all between waking suggestibility, gullibility, and hypnotic suggestibility. Hypnotic suggestibility is its own thing. And it's really much more about a person's ability to empathize. This is my own research on empathy that I've done in hypnosis. Uh, it shows that it, though suggestibility doesn't uh, predict hypnotic uh, experience or hypnotic ability, this is why I stopped using the word hypnotic suggestibility, by the way, because I think the suggestibility, we don't see any scientific evidence that it has anything to do with this. I mean, it's the form of communication we use to teach, but so does also your guru give you a suggestion. Now you can imagine this, you would transform into this a dakini, and then mm -hmm. you will you know, chop your head off and arms and put into the cooking pot in the chud meditation. So those are also suggestions. When the layperson thinks of the word suggestibility, it's associated with unconscious influence. In other words, that yeah. the subject is influenced without knowing that they're influenced. And this also, you mentioned the George Foreman grill and things like that. Of course, yeah. I think that's also where hypnosis uh, and maybe certain psychology in general, but certainly in hypnosis has got a bit of a bad rap associated with subliminal or unconscious marketing techniques or even propaganda techniques actually because yeah. some of it's some of the uh, very fascinating advances actually and i think in that field are mm -hmm. have been uh, in the area of propaganda frighteningly enough but that's what i think most people think of when they think of suggestibility so the ability therefore hypnotically would be in the one doing the suggesting the, the clever crafting of yeah communications, subcommunications, and also overt communications, pointing at things. <laughs> now I'm being just silly. Yeah. But yes. um, to create in the subject an effect without yeah. the person understanding it's been done, and perhaps without even being aware that they're now influenced. Yes. And so there is something there. Okay. I don't mean to say that there is no skillful means uh, in either tradition. <laughs> there are skillful means in both traditions. However, here's something interesting. Um, we can actually measure the magnitude of the effect of the hip, uh, hip, skillful means in the hypnotic tradition. Somebody actually did this study. It's a really funny study. It was done by this guy named Steve Lynn, who's a wonderful social cognitive uh, hypnotist and also uh, uh, passionately devoted to uh, debunking uh, pseudoscience. Really wonderful man. Uh, and real irreverent, wonderful guy. I love him very much. Uh, really nice, uh, very funny. And he did this study where he wanted to see what were the limits of, of you know, trying to uh, use uh, suggestibility uh, under the guise of expectancy, because that uh, he's in what's uh, part of partly his research comes from Irving Kirsch's perspective response expectancy theory. And he really co-create that 
uh, with Irving, though Irving, of course, uh, really uh, amazing, all the things he's done with that, and he's at Harvard. But anyway, so this, this is one of the experiments in that uh, early days. And they, what they wanted to see was how much they could alter hypnotic responsiveness by changing expectancy. And the way they did it was really awful. <laughs> what they did was they uh, bring people to measure their hypnotic ability using a standardized test. So everyone's receiving the same suggestions. It's generally uh, 12 items. And if you get all 12, pass all 12 experiences, which are things like, um, you know, hypnotic hallucinations, uh, relaxing very deeply, imagining a magnetic forces bringing your hands together and things like this. Um, and you get all 12 of these and you're 12. If you get zero, you're zero. If, well, you're not a zero, but whatever. Uh, actually, we're all zero, but anyway, if you get it, every score on this is like six or five or something on this scale. And uh, so they wanted to see if they could alter the scores by changing um, people's expectations. So this, that's their skillful means. People have a, an ability that is intrinsic to them, but you can alter it. And um, they thought that the whole thing was trained in, in the early days. They thought this was something that, uh, you know, you could make anyone a high and you could make anyone a low. And so they did lots and lots of different crazy things to try and get people uh, who were initially measured spontaneously to be a low, to be a high. And also, could you take a high and make them a low? That's how crazy the thinking was, you know? Uh, and what they found is actually not true, that uh, there is, is uh, a spontaneous uh, ability within people that they're working with to begin with. And so one experiment that everyone came in, the, the hypnotist would either compliment the person and like really say a lot of positive things and try to form a rapport uh, just before they measured. And then uh, otherwise they would just be neutral in one condition. And then a third condition, they actually said mildly insulting things to them. <laughs> like they said the, the dumb shoes or the clothes didn't match or you know socks didn't match or say something mildly insulting like you know going to one of these crazy restaurants where they do that. You know? And so uh, they actually did that. And the interesting thing was uh, that it did have an effect like forming a bad relationship actually reduced people's measured hypnotic ability, but not all the way. People still had their own experience and were interested in the phenomenon enough that they were like, well, this person's a jerk, but uh, I'm in my own world here now, fuck you. I'm just gonna have a good old time in hypnosis. And so they still had some highs and they still had some mediums and some people who were still low were still low in uh, level of experience. Uh, but it was altered by about two points on a 12-point scale, two to three points. So that's a magnitude of effect of hypnosis in terms of skillful means is about two or three points on a 12-point scale. Maybe guru is six points, I don't know. <laughs> maybe guru is out with pointing out that maybe they can. But my feeling is actually, even from the perspective of Dzogchen, you know, all of this really is about you know, really making this your own. And uh, even to such a strong extent that um, when I have worked with Tenzin Wangyal, when I've had difficulty with, you know, certain instructions, uh, he's actually told me to do the opposite of them. 
so that I could make it my own. And usually what happens is when I did that, then I suddenly got what was meant by doing it the other way. Uh, and so his skillful means has been wonderful with me, I must say. Uh, but at any rate, there's an idea that, um, biggest idea that uh, I'm interested in uh, overcoming misunderstanding from Western students view that tradition of hypnosis can help is that um, mm, a kind of uh, spiritual materialism. Like I noticed a lot of times people are not understanding the deep philosophy of mind in, in Dzogchen, that this whole world is created in an illusory way. And so sometimes, and that also our experience of self is created in an illusory way. Sometimes I hear like people like really tripping out on the transpersonal phenomena around a teacher, like you feel really good energy and stuff like that. And I, by the way, I feel these things too, you know, <laughs> you know, but I regard them as any other sensory experience and illusion. Uh, and maybe they are auspicious, I don't know, but um, uh, ultimately they're just other things to suffer with if you attach to them. And I see a lot of people really attached to teachers crazy spiritual materialistic stuff and saying, you know, like you know, really awful example I hate to bring up, but it's very useful one, so I will, was, was uh, Thomas a Rich, the Vajra region in the uh, Shambhala tradition. You know, he thought that because uh, he received the blessings of the Karmapa and other people and uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, of course, he thought Apparently, he couldn't get AIDS. And also, once he learned he had AIDS, he thought uh, he couldn't give it to people because somehow the guardians wouldn't allow it or something like that. That's insane, you know, uh, Phil. And also, that is not a skillful means because one person actually died of this, you know? And so I feel like uh, all these crazy phenomena that people are experiences that shows out to them the illusory nature of the world and illusory nature of the self. These are basic phenomena that everyone is experiencing. And we should not think of this phenomena uh, in this crazy way that make for spiritual materialism, where we're really uh, actually reinforcing the ego with these crazy views, you know, like I, you know, I talk to myself about some of the experiences I had, but I try not to attach to them too much because I feel like this really makes just reinforces my ego or something, you know? Uh, I feel like that is one of the most important things. If you learn about hypnosis, you can come up with simple explanations for why you heard this hallucination, things like expectancy. You can come up with um, um, much simpler explanations and also understand what I believe is uh, the most profound elements of these Dharmic teachings that, that are so simple uh, that they are integrated into our ordinary experience of reality. We shouldn't be constructing altered states of consciousness and trying to live in, in uh, you know, some kind of hypnopompic state, you know, and maintaining that and, mm -hmm. you know, making ourselves very crazy. Uh, it should be about making you more loving, more gentle, more simple. Uh, I, that's why I've always noticed the teachers that I relate to the most are the most ordinary ones as they have the most realization uh, seems to me also to be most ordinary one like the 
you know, one of my teachers, uh, he's from rural Tibet. And he, in many ways, if you go and talk to him, he seems like country bumpkin. His first questions to you are always about, have you eaten yet? And, uh, you know, very simple things, you know, wants to take care of you. Uh, and you think that's, you know, maybe he's some uh, other Lama's attendant or something, the way he's so humble. Uh, and that if you ask him a question about Dzogchen, then uh, amazing stuff comes out of him. It's like, oh, wow. There's like really a lot of wisdom. May I ask you about that? Yeah. Before my questions about uh, the mm -hmm. way you were using the word hypnotic ability, you notice yeah. so many highly suggestible people in Dharma oh. contexts. And now you're pointing to one of the things hypnosis can do. We can not only leverage its techniques, in a mm. dharmic context, but you can also perhaps even avoid some pitfalls of spiritual materialism by understanding things through that hypnotic lens. Was that the conclusion to your initial point about highly hypnotizable people? Yes, because there's so many of them around gurus. Right. You know. My question then, an area of interest of mine is religious conversion as a oh. phenomenon. I think it's very fascinating. And yeah. I've talked to a lot of people who've had religious conversion experiences of various kinds. And mm -hmm. very often, one of the mechanisms is that I've noticed, now I'm not, I'm unfortunately a scientist and academic, so this is an entirely amateur observation. But it seems to me that very often, a powerful state experience will be the root that convinces a person or, or mm -hmm. catalyzes a conversion. I'm thinking of one situation of somebody I talked to who encountered a Hindu uh, guru had a spiritual experience of feeling physically a certain phenomena of wind and so on. And that was, to their mind, proof of everything else this guru represented. So because they had a state experience, they said, well, I really experienced that. So it must be real. And then, the next, real. then the next leap of logic is, therefore, everything in this system must be true as well. I found the truth because how, well, how else could I possibly have experienced this? And after all, I did experience it and no one could take that away from me. But a Christian say the same thing. I felt this overwhelming power as one. And in yeah. the Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist context, around the 16th Karmapa, I've yeah. heard many converts to Tibetan Buddhism who encountered the 16th Karmapa. When you get yeah. to the root of what was the turning point for them or the part where they were, and sometimes they even describe it as captured. They were captured. Yeah. By, and they say that with a degree of glee. They were captured by the Karmapa. Yeah. Um, he looks across the room and they have an experience of some sort yeah. of duality or they have a steady And that's seen as the, well, because of this. You're right on to a very important point. Even yeah. I can explain science of you're very right. That'd be great. Yeah. So I'm curious then, and you're talking about how these sorts of religious experiences that, or these sorts of state experiences, one has around a guru, you're saying, well, we, you could see them as, we could explain them from a hypnotic point of view. It seems to be you're implying also that this isn't really where it's at. If you get obsessed with that, you're going to miss what really uh, yeah. the tradition has to offer. So I'm, I'm curious then in your uh, work crossing over these traditions, have you had any pushback? from people whose religious position has come from a conversion experience like that. It would seem to me that what you've just said, that experiences around gurus, which people take as they base their entire lives around that, that sort of thing. Yeah. It would seem to me that you're somewhat undermining or threatening that with what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a true. Uh, 
I feel like the phenomena of attachment, you know, this is really, you know, this is really, uh, can be used as a skillful means, right? And that's, that's some of this possibility. The skillful means part of this kind of thing is that it uh, alters the self, you know? But then what happens is a new self is created. And then if you, then you become even more attached to that one than you were the earlier one. You know, now there's some feeling that maybe you are even already enlightened, maybe in some really crazy cases, you know, like people go way out there and feel already they are enlightened and all sorts of things. I've had these experiences myself, you know, I don't, I'm not ashamed, you know. Uh, well, maybe I am, but working with it. So I'll say everything <laughs> in order to challenge. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's really uh, difficult. And in that, like, for instance, we'll provide a very um, sad context is, I think, very easy to see. You know, the students of the Vajra region, you know, they also, some apparently knew they had AIDS. And, you know, they, just that no, no harm may come to me this way because of guardians or some other such, you know, um, misplaced faith, you know, and, and then they get AIDS and some die. And uh, so this was too much a clinging, too much attachment to this is, is also missing the deeper truth that uh, none of this, you know, don't attach to nothing. You know, don't attach to the self and don't attach to the world and be free and play in this illusion. You know, like one of my favorite books ever is uh, The Mysterious Stranger uh, from uh, Mark Twain. It ended that book. You know, this whole play of reality is revealed to be illusory, uh, even the self. And then uh, the kind of like guru-like person says to uh, the dreamer, Dream other dreams, better ones. <laughs> and so, you know, it's very important not to remain attached to this stuff. And uh, also at the same time, I think more naturally and spontaneously simple things arise like uh, awareness of how many, you know, billion people suffering on this planet in the illusion of self. Uh, how many billion people suffering in illusion of world and collective karma that is making even whole continents uh, difficult to obtain food and water. And uh, now we have global spread of uh, virus. But even before, there was a, so much a sickness in some places everywhere. It's just an awful. Uh, so that it becomes uh, the grounding reality. You know, I feel is that our, our responsibility as a bodhisattva for helping with the suffering of the world, uh, not to become too attached to um, the technology that gives us these insights into the <laughs> illusory nature of self. Um, and you know, the teachings say that too. You know, the Dzogchen teachings, they say that. You know, you shouldn't be attached to these things. And, uh, you know, Trungpa Rinpoche wrote this whole book about uh, spiritual materialism, you know, and uh, even His Holiness the Dalai Lama says this is a wonderful book, you know. Uh, and so many people, Thomas and Merton, 
also enjoyed Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche. I don't know if he got to read that book, but uh, many people have said this is good classic book, even taught in Christian, some Christian monasteries. Um, yeah, it's very important not to get caught up in spiritual materialism. And it's very easy to do, particularly when you're, uh, I think, in this context of studying very, very powerful meditation techniques that frankly, only people like high hypnotic, uh, who have high hypnotic ability are generally going to be able to get uh, at the deepest of level. Uh, we know, uh, so that is why I believe gurus are surrounded by these people, because frankly, they're the only ones that will stick around. <laughs> Otherwise, you just like, he said to do this and nothing happened. Okay, and then they don't stick around. But people who have this natural proclivity to use their mind body, this is what I think hypnotic ability is, by the way. I think it's mind body ability. I, that's the way I write about it. Hypnotic ability is a kind of an index of your general mind body talent. And there are very specific things within it. We know there are about nine patterns. Uh, my good friend Ron Pakal has done like 30 years of phenomenological research in hypnosis and discovered about nine patterns in how people experience hypnosis. And they pretty much correspond to how people uh, experience meditation for that matter or anything. They just, there are nine patterns of how people relate to the world, I guess, and the experience itself. But at any rate, um, in the Vajrayana and Dzogchen, it uh, requires you to have at least average ability, I think even to get anything. Uh, those with low ability, uh, they generally don't stay. I have met some exceptions here and there. It's very interesting. And those people are profound, very profound people. In the end, I think there really is no, you know, higher or lower hypnotic ability. All has the same potential. And, um, but in a relative way, there are differences between beings. You know, even it says, I had this wonderful quote coming from Nagarjuna, is talks about, you know, there are something like 84,000 different meditations for the 84,000 different forms of suffering and the many thousands of types of beings that could receive these teachings. So we must make some differences about what techniques should be used for the person in front of you. And uh, that's why this danger is because we're at the very top of uh, mind-body ability and people are able to experience these things, these techniques but if they don't understand that this actually this same phenomena exists outside of Dzogchen, then I feel there is a possibility that people will make this spiritual materialism and say, and anything goes now, and I must have followed this and not think about what's happening critically. Like, you know, real Tibetan wisdom is you must test everything, you know, with your critical thinking skills, not just your, um, non-conceptual awareness and unconscious mind phenomena. You know, you must use even your critical thinking skills. So, you know, you must hammer away with the jeweler's hammer on the gold and bring out the luster. And so it is okay and fine to ask dualistically based questions even just to see what happens on a non-dualistic phenomena. A lot, a lot of times the answers are not satisfying and raise more mystery. But that's kind of satisfying too, I think. I, I enjoyed the whole exercise mm -hmm. as if it was a, a play in a dream, you know? And uh, I think as long as we're aware that it's a dream and that there's a limit to what we're gonna do with dualistically based uh, language 
and conceptual skills is a limit you know how far we're going to make it with this um, but getting to that limit is also fun i think i think it's fun to come to the ends of knowledge what can be understood conceptually and because then you're really standing at a very important phenomena and you get to experience that yourself science can very much be a search for the truth as well in uh, the same way that we have in the dharma and that is very much ahi pasika and so if you go to the phenomena that take you to the edge then you can learn and experience something very very powerful so that's the one thing there's another thing you were asking me about earlier which is uh, so that's the misunderstanding that i think a lot of people have in the particularly Western people that needs to overcome this so they don't end up doing the dumb things. Uh, and I don't know, maybe that sounds judgmental. They don't make a, uh, their, their ignorance doesn't cause them to do tragic things is really what I'm talking about. Because mm -hmm. uh, there are many times that is a happen. Uh, also just a fellow Geshe Michael Roach, you know, as people had transpersonal experience with him and all kinds of crazy things up in this community. And as many examples of this. Um, and I think people understand that this ability to change the world is actually ordinary. You were doing it all your life. You just didn't realize it. <laughs> you know, very ordinary, but very useful. Let me ask my previous question slightly more pointed. Oh, yes. Please. Yeah. One hears all sorts of things. To what degree do you think, as an expert in hypnosis yourself, and having been around many influential, potent dharma teachers to mm -hmm. what degree do you think hypnotic techniques yeah co not called by that name perhaps yeah. are deliberately used or perhaps some other devices used which actually could be broken down hypnotically in terms of transmission and so on i mentioned that previous question the 16th karmapa who yeah one hears many stories of american or european converts whose catalyst of their conversion was a glance from him or being in his area and having a transpersonal experience of some sort and that and that being the sort of unassailable bedrock then of their of their religious conversion mm -hmm. um, certain teachers seem to have that or seem to major in that yeah um, and the karmapas famously do and uh, others others less so I'm, I'm curious what do you make of that are, are these teachers deliberately doing this and how would you break that down as an expert in hypnotherapy? Okay, so there's two aspects of this. One is the context. This is one of the great things about hypnosis is we, you can understand, you know, uh, how these things occur. And there is a social context that's very important in which this phenomenon occurs, uh, both in the hypnotic world and in Dzogchen or any other situation involving what we would call transpersonal experiences. Um, seances and things like that medium stuff um, the context is actually way more important than people realize so one of the things is uh, these teachers are surrounded by people who have the highest level of transpersonal experiences even before they arrive to meet the karmapa and who had been dreaming about him and maybe even read like life of malarapa that read uh you know commonly you know about different saints and the different kind of experiences that they had and knowing that many times right when the person first met the teacher there was some kind of ah you know the kind of thing 
Uh, and so they're arriving with these expectations, you know? Now, I'm not meaning to say that this invalidates all transpersonal experience, but it certainly is a part of the context, okay? Because I've had these experiences myself too, and I, I treasured them and uh, I feel they're useful, but I should not become too attached to them because then I leave my critical thinking behind. And that's how I'm gonna understand the Dharma in the best is use all my intelligence, not just the magical thinking. Uh, I don't. I don't suppress my magical thinking and I don't suppress my critical thinking. Both should be used. But so when you go around and you go to meet someone and you don't know that you are a high hypnotizable and capable of producing uh, hypnotic hallucinations, uh, even without an induction of hypnosis, people can go through surgery with uh, just a simple uh, self-hypnosis, no hypnotic suggestion at all. They just like I've had people go through whole hypnosis with no sur surgery. I mean, no surgery, no anesthesia during surgery. Uh, these are generally neural um, neurosurgeries where the person must remain awake because they need to do some neural mapping. They have to ask, what do you experience when we electrically electrocute your nerve tissue? Uh, or often with the spine and things. And so people go through this whole thing. Uh, no anesthesia at all, uh, only thing used a hypnosis. People don't understand just how malleable is our experience of our body. If you would like to experience your body weighing a million pounds, it's not hard at all. If you would like to know what it'd be like to be a thousand feet tall, you can do that. Anything, you know, you're tired of having pain in your back, focus on the joy of your heart. And that is very interesting. Uh, also, you know, you could make your body turn into wood, all kinds of things. And so when people go to these uh, experiences that are read about this phenomena already, uh, or at least some of them. And then the other thing is, high hypnotizables, by my research, were very empathic people. Not necessarily uh, either introspective or uh, extroverted. There's a balance, generally speaking, in some more on one end than the other. No correlation between introversion and extroversion, but empathic by nature and loved to find about other people. And so they begin talking. And then some people, so maybe some already had that experience with another teacher and they talked. Oh, I went to meet this teacher and I got the Shakti pot. And then, uh, then I felt the energy. And also, yeah, maybe they saw, heard that with the uh, Karmapa puts on the black hat that he is taking on the mind, you know? And uh, I heard of many black hat stories. There's many stories told about his visit to America, his effect on animals, uh, which I, I don't know if the animals heard any expectancy, <laughs> but at any rate, uh, people tell these stories. And so that's the social context in which they occur, that there already were expectation that you might experience something from a particular teacher. And you know, the more students that are around that have high hypnotic ability, then they are influencing one another, tuning each other into this phenomena. Now, uh, does that mean the phenomena doesn't occur? Um, I don't go that far. I've experienced it myself. And uh, I have to say as someone, I, I raise the possibility that expectancy has produced some of these things. Others, it's hard for me to say that I think that that's the case. 
but at least some of them seem likely that, that they were sort of helped along, you know. Uh, maybe some were, I don't know. Uh, some really just astound me uh, that I've experienced. Um, you know, things like the predictions I got from Lama Dawa, um, who I admit I was kind of skeptical of some of his things. Like when he told me I was this monk in Sikkim, I kind of just left that behind. I was just sort of like, well, that was another life. Who cares? You know, I just want to know who my teacher is, you know. Uh, and so, I, you know, really, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel that truth needs to be defended against critical thinking. I think actually you need your critical thinking to get the deepest aspect of the truth. And so I let myself experience this phenomenon. It's a lot of times they're based on social expect, a context of social expectation. People are talking about it. And then uh, how it actually occurs is, you know, there is some context that signals to you, oh, maybe this is what's happening. And maybe at that time, uh, you're very excited and uh, maybe sympathetic nerve system or maybe parasympathetic nervous system is deeply engaged and uh, you're in a slightly altered state of consciousness already through maybe doing some uh, you know, mantra practice or singing wonderful you know, lineage songs um, and um, really feeling a deep state of uh, what we would call transference in the psychoanalytic tradition. And you can, we can measure this phenomenon even with instruments in hypnosis. In fact, there's only one tradition that measures uh, transference in any psychoanalytic stuff directly. It's hypnosis. We have ways of doing this. It's really wonderful. Um, and, and psychophysiology, of course, too. But uh, at any rate, uh, so yeah, one of the things is that the relationship that the guru has, and this is the part where maybe some teachers are aware of this. You know, they become aware, you know, I do notice that there are many of the teachers I study with, like Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche, has amazing ability to form rapport with people. And uh, even uh, more amazingly, uh, to speak the same language. So that, that's actually um, what I was mentioning um, in that first paper from 2004, is that you know, gurus had this amazing ability to actually um, become so devoted to their students that even they will use your language, you know, in describing uh, the truth to you. And that's what I think was so important about, you know, receiving pointing out instruction by someone who actually know you, you know, really know how you think and uh, how you're experiencing yourself and the illusory nature of the world. And then, then like a good therapist, you know, they can uh, properly appreciate and use your words in describing your world uh, as if they were you and take on that illusion a little bit, you know, like when we're a good hypnotist, that's what we do. Uh, I, I play, that I am the person and I say the things that are necessary to hypnotize myself as if I was that person. And if my model's pretty good, it'll work. Um, and so that's kind of a skillful means. Um, does that produce the entire result? The, re the evidence suggests no. It's a, maybe in the hypnosis context, it's about a third maybe. At most of the variance is explained by um, this kind of, um, what we would call expectancy manipulation. 
So it's more about not so much the suggestion itself, but what's really doing it is that you're knowledgeable of the person's expectations about um, what would be the thing that would make them go into trance or how they would be able to experience trance or other phenomena you're trying to get to. Like, um, for instance, if I'm working with someone that um, I'm trying to help them uh, relax, knowing that um, they love to watch birds can be something I can use to relax. I will say, now imagine you're in your home and you're looking out a window at a beautiful meadow and birds are there. And so if I'm using uh, the phenomena <clears throat> that naturalistically occur to the person, so I can do something with that, you know, knowing the person deeply with empathy, I can do something with that. But it turns out it's not enough. I can't make a, a person with low hypnotic ability a high this way. At best, I can bring them into the average range. Or, or if I wanted to, I could take a person with high hypnotic ability, insult them, and bring them into the average range. You know? uh, and if they wanted to, though, a person, I've done this myself, a, per, a person with very, very good uh, motivation and it was had low hypnotic ability actually it got nothing on the zero to 12 scale it was a zero and uh i remember the first time i did the testing i opened my eyes uh, from having done the thing and he opened his eyes and he said well i hope that was good for you because i didn't get nothing <laughs> but he had such a bad problem uh he had uh fallen out of a helicopter during vietnam and his spine was shattered and he was living in agony and he had received more than six operations for his spine and everything that could possibly be done had been done and he is still living in agony. And so neurosurgeon said, uh, we have nothing left but things that could potentially kill you. So why don't you go see crazy Dr. Ian? And I was like, okay, I'll see him. And, I, and uh, he saw me every day uh, like five days a week for a month. This guy was so motivated and he had no hypnotic experience at all. But over time, I worked with him. Actually, this guy is <laughs> the guy who, by the way, was a bird watcher. And so I found this one little thing and we built on that. And I said, now we will watch the birds mindfully and we'll turn this into mindfulness meditation. And eventually he ends up... Uh, doing anything I can do and more. I, I think this guy is actually a higher level uh, hypnotic ability than I have. Uh, so he went from being a low to a high, but that took time and it took him learning it. And he ended up learning things that I can't do actually, it's very interesting. Um, so there is this context that we can facilitate and gurus can also by their nature of their empathy and compassion for the student, uh, do things that are make it more likely that they will experience the alteration in self that there is suggested by the techniques. So, I mean, that's what I understand all these techniques are about. They're about altering the default mode network. They're about altering our experience of self and altering our illusion of the world so that we can make some experiential insights into its illusory nature and not be so attached to it. Not to reattach to the illusion, right? That's what people are like, wow, I like this better. Imagining the Karmapa, you know, in his psychophys, you know, the Sambhokakaya, 
you know, it's like, uh, you know, uh, you really trip out on it, you know. Um, I don't think that's really what that those displays are meant. They're meant to be direct displays of the illusion and to become less attached, not more attached. And unfortunately, that's what some people are doing. And that's because I think that they have not properly thought with critical awareness about the non-duality of those experiences, which is a funny thing, right? Using critical thinking to overcome non-duality sounds ridiculous. And it kind of is actually, it's kind of fun ridiculous, I think myself. I like, I appreciate the paradox and the irony. I always feel like I'm getting closer to the truth when I feel everything starts becoming very paradoxical. Like that's, that's really a sign. Um, though I try not to be too attached to that too. <laughs> There's a lot to be attached to in this life and a lot of hangups. I seem to be discovering more of them, but I'm very appreciative of them. <laughs> Does that mean that if you find yourself really quite certain with no sense of paradox or friction or conflict in a, in a view you have, then you, you immediately become suspicious of it? It's true. Yeah, it's like, it's just, like, it's just too easy, you know? Uh, then, you know, I'm not afraid, you know, you start to, what is the simpler explanation for what I'm experiencing? You know, like Occam's razor is a wonderful aspect of science is this tradition of skepticism, you know, and uh, yeah, Trump Provoche used to talk about this beautiful form of skepticism. He called it open skepticism. So it's a skepticism that where you're openly skeptical and you can ask any question about anything, you know, point out other explanations and investigate them you know don't just you know receive you know you must test but also there's openness you know that's the paradox of this is that a lot of times when people get trained in skepticism they're not actually properly skeptical they're not skeptical even of the skepticism because a lot of times people talk themselves purely out of uh, opportunities just by um, not questioning the person who's question, questioning. You need to question the questioner. Like, am I being so rough and so abrasive to this subject? Why am I doing that? You know, am I being going not, do I have enough openness to actually understood what was said? Like anyone could just, you know, like a Donald Trump uh, badgering, uh, you know, Joe Biden over and over or something like that, or in debate, someone constantly interrupting is more generally another person. Uh, you know, a real debater actually listens to their opponent to properly deconstruct their argument. You know, if you just attack and don't even listen, then you're not really a good debater. And that's really, uh, it must, the best skepticism, you must be skeptical of yourself. So am I being open enough to really receive what is being said. And that is the part that is missing, I think, from a lot of people's skepticism. They just want to make fun of people who experience uh, powerful transpersonal phenomena, like me, <laughs> and a lot of the people that I study. Uh, I feel these people should be honored. Uh, so not only should we they be skeptical of them, but we must be skeptical of why we're skeptical of them. Like, yeah. uh, I guess they, you know, this also, you know, um, challenges the ordinary view of reality, you know, that uh, we are not living in this dualistic paradigm of ordinary things where 
hitting your hand causes pain, you know. And we're not living like this. I'm not even sure we are living, you know, living is happening, I guess. And then we are experiencing things. Uh, and so that's why it's very important to have this questioning the question. Mm -hmm. I had a dream once, you know, the characteristic of the new atheists movement yeah. is of skeptics who are the only thing that they're not skeptical of is their own skepticism, right? Uh, that's yeah. a characteristic that some or a characterization that sometimes criticize the new atheists. I think. Yeah. Um, and anyway, and uh, but I had a dream once that um, the Prasangika Madhyamakas and the Swatantrika Madhyamakas were in the, my dream. And the Prasangika Madhyamakas were like the new atheists and the Swatantrika Madhyamakas were angry with the Prasangika ones because the difference, of course, between their two argument styles of yeah. the prasangika you know not a, no assertion just deconstruction or just questioning but the swatantrika people of course in terms of debate style they want to have an assertion postulation that to work from but the prasangika don't do that. and so they really annoy each other i had this <laughs> uh, i had this dream where they weren't really wasn't so much a philosophical difference they were having but it was a temperamental difference that they were having and they were becoming irritated by each other like it's a little bit like this presidential debate yeah you're talking about the prasanga code were actually like donald trump then in that case it's usually right <laughs> that's really beautiful you know and in a very powerful dream you know these intuitions from dreams that come deep wisdom is you know coming this way you know that sounds like a clear light experience a bit to me i think it was just me attempting to relate the prasangika swatandrika distinction to my own points of reference that's how i interpret I interpret the dream uh, my, myself i think but. you're you're right though that this is different types of people you know nagarjuna talks about this it really uh, teachings different teachings are for different types of people and uh, i think as part of that it, um, if we were more aware of what these types were you know and uh, which i think is a possibility of the hypnosis world and describing the personality characteristics of people at these different levels of ability, then I think we could more skillfully teach and we could say, you know, uh, like people wonder, when should I go after the Vajrayana and the Dzogchen? Like, you know, generally in the Shambhala lineage is one of the, uh, was said that you must you know, sort of progress through Hinayana, Mahayana to Vajrayana. And, and actually the word Dzogchen was not used openly when I was uh, taking those teachings until more recently. Um, and so like, what, how do you know, you know, and actually we can say, you know, from the hypnotic uh, perspective, uh, probably not much useful, you know, not as useful. You should work on developing your mind-body ability level, you know, and your embodiment of the, the basic techniques like a shamatha and chine. And even those techniques, you know, you are, my experience of that is that my understanding of the practice has uh, grown along with me. And so that uh, as I have developed my mind body ability, my ability to uh, understand uh, what's happening in the phenomenon of meditation has also increased. So that it feels like those, this is saying, you know, it comes from, I think it's Suzuki Roshi. One of his Oriyoki mule 
chants, you know, the Holy Dharma is good in the beginning, the middle, and the end. And so a lot of these Hinayana teachings, uh, I think, are wonderful. And they do reach people of low hypnotic ability, I believe. Uh, and even we can say that, yeah, most people taking meditation, uh, even their low hypnotic, hypnotic ability, they will get something out of that. At least relaxation is the thing that they most commonly get, which is useful, learning how to relax. It's very useful, you know? And then they get more and more subtle things and your mind-body grows, and then it's possible to do Sugchen. But then there are some people who actually, you know, they can maybe start something more in the middle. So anyway, this is what I think, that more knowledge of the psychology of hypnosis may be helpful in understanding the psychology of how teachers can work with different types of students. Other than um, naturalistically, there is really some um, generalizations. Like I think really gurus, when they work with someone, they're really working very, very holistically with the person in front of them without probably too much knowledge of, you know, categories of people probably doesn't seem as necessary to them. But still, I think there's some possibility of using systems as well. And maybe that would be helpful. By the way, I have noticed that I'll, I've never read in any meditation manual of any of any tradition, like how to use the hypnotic voice. You know, it's one thing I actually often ask different gurus. I was like, you have a really wonderful way of leading meditation. Oh, thank you. You know, how did you learn to do that? You know, like speak on your out breath and just relax. Why does this seem hypnotic? <laughs> I'm just speaking on my out breath. But everyone does this. I don't care if they're Dzogchen, Hypnosis, John Kabat-Zinn. <laughs> you know, everyone's doing this. Herbert Benson, yoga teacher, leading, uh, you know, um, the corpse pose one. <laughs> you know, it's really, everyone does this, you know, speaking on the out-breath. It's just natural. Uh, in hypnosis, though, we really spend a lot of time uh, investigating that because uh, there was this misconception about suggestibility. So people would try to really maximize their technique, you know, and like what we could do. And so people learn, you know, like how you, uh, we call pacing and leading the hypnotic experience. We would like to pace that. We'll actually observe the person's chest and abdomen and try to speak on their out breath. So I will actually alter my breathing to be with the other person's breathing, you know? Um, and I have noticed, you know, they actually, uh, and using this warm kind of voice, you know, that has a certain cadence to it and warmth to it. Um, there's some qualities of what we would call parentees in how we talk. Parentees is the way that we speak to children when they're just born we tend to accent vowels sounds. It's very interesting because apparently one of our first basic tasks as infants is to learn the difference between consonants and vowel sounds. Um, and so if you speak with this different, deeper kind of voice that maybe makes an O sound, oh, 
<laughs> that's a different thing. Uh, but it, when we speak in the hypnotic voice or the relaxing voice the gurus use, um, it actually uh, accents the vowel sounds in the same way that we do to children. Uh, and so I ask, you know, does it say anywhere in the Kusum Ramskar some secret document that gurus should talk this way? And uh, all of my teachers tell me the same thing. They teach the same way that they were taught as a tribute to their teachers. And that really mean that. They love the teachers, you know. And, and like in the Bon uh, Tenzin Namdok Rinpoche, uh, I can literally, as I have seen him teach, I can literally see in his students, you know, some of the same thoughts and feelings and they're very devoted. Um, and so I think that's how it happened that, you know, this is a naturalistic thing. I think some teachers have a better understanding than others uh, about the technique of it. Um, but I have yet to see any text that talks about how to do that. Whereas in hypnosis, they're like mostly that is what was written for the first hundred years. How do you do this? And, and you know, how can you get a woman to take her clothes off and all this craziness? You know, she'll take her clothes off as she wants to take them off. <laughs> so the best thing would be to fall in love with her and her to fall in love with you. That is hypnosis enough <laughs> to make the clothes come off. It, that will not happen through that. Uh, and there's lots of experiments that we've shown that even from our own perspective, if you tried even a very skillful hypnotist cannot get a person to do something against their will. Uh, I actually knew the guy who did the craziest of those experiments, which involved people putting their hands in rattlesnake cages. Uh, and also he would ask people to uh, uh, throw a vial of acid in his face. And uh, what else did he do? Uh, then he had uh, people take a, uh, like a gun, you know, uh, and see if they would shoot another person, this kind of thing. And uh, they would do that sometimes. Like one, one person actually threw a vial of acid in his face. And uh, he was a magician, so he would show them there was acid and it would dissolve like paper or something in the acid. And then when they weren't looking through sleight of hand, he'd switch it with some similarly colored liquid. And then uh, in a hypnotic trance, he would invite them to throw the acid in his face. No one would do it except for one guy. <laughs> And this guy and him got into a big argument before the thing happened. Uh, and so he did throw it in his face, you know? And then uh, actually on that one occasion, this guy's name is Fred Evans. Uh, he uh, had fucked up the sleight of hand and the real acid went in his face. <laughs> but he also was a very smart man. And just in case he fucked up, he had materials on hand and he didn't really suffer much damage. Uh, but uh, it was real sulfuric acid. And so you just cannot get people to do things in hypnosis they won't do ordinarily. However, they will do things that they would do ordinarily in hypnosis and they will do them better. <laughs> it will do them, perform them better. You know, you can be, you know, if you wanna be a better swimmer, you can, you can do that better in hypnosis. If you're trying to alter any aspect of your life, reduce pain, reduce depression, reduce anxiety, uh, anything that you would like to do, you can do it better with hypnosis. They're just ways of altering the mind-body relationship to be more optimal. 
And so to the extent to which optimizing your mind-body relationship will help a particular thing you're trying to do, and that's the extent to which hypnosis will help. Um, but at any rate, so yeah, this is, I think, very important that uh, you know, people really understand the nature of these phenomena. It's very important. Uh, gurus do have a way of working with one and pointing out the nature of one's mind. Uh, but it's very important not to get too attached to that. And also, it's very important to understand that um, the context of things that are going around them is, you know, the Sangha is even a jewel, is said, right? One of the aspects of the, you know, the Sangha being a, 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 one of the three gems, the three jewels, you know, the, the Dharma, you know, the, and the teacher and the, and the Sangha is really the Sangha. So we're learning as much from the people around us as anything else. Uh, and the expectancies are, can turn us in ways that can be helpful sometimes, but we shouldn't be too attached to the phenomena we experience. Uh, we must really emphasize our present experience and its emptiness. I think that's really where um, the most subtle aspect of this is also the most simple. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful place to leave it. I'm afraid we may have to turn our triptych into a four-parter. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking too, yeah. And dedicate well, a, I, an entire episode to your brush with COVID-19 and the cacophony of neurological effects that uh, you suffered as a consequence of that. You know, it's actually ideal to, uh, I think maybe for that to happen because uh, in that one experience, uh, I brought together all my learning of hypnosis and all my learning of the Dharma. Uh, and so there's a way in which uh, uh, I actually had to say, I don't want to say like, uh, I, I'm glad that it happened, but I have to say, I am kind of glad that it happened because it really was uh, a profound opportunity to have a near death experience and experience a Bardo related phenomena not fully Bardo, but I was starting to get in there. Uh, and, uh, and really work with my grasping on the experience of self. Uh, and many powerful things uh, happened for me. Uh, many transpersonal experiences uh, in that. And it really, to me, uh, brought together the best of what I knew uh, already about hypnosis and uh, Dzogchen. And it was a very interesting testing ground to almost die, <laughs> you know? I was a little, I was sad that I didn't die. A little part of me was like, I was all prepared to die and it was like totally ready. Uh, and then I didn't, you know, it was almost a little sad, but uh, also I'm so grateful I'm here. I can be with such wonderful people like yourself or then such important work and I can also be helping people too. I'm glad to be back in this dream. But a little part of me was <laughs> like, ooh, because now I'm going to have to do that again. You know, will I, next time I almost die, will I do as well as last time? I'm not sure. I hope so. But at any rate, yeah, this uh, last one uh, can bring together everything because I had to use lots of hypnosis to manage the painful body sensations and uh, even I had to stay alive with hypnosis through my breathing a little bit because my breathing was 
depressed so badly that they want to put me on a ventilator. And I was basically only by virtue of uh, hypnotic breathing, staying alive. And my guru had told me I needed to do a certain mantra practice uh, to pray for medicine Buddha kind of thing. You know, um, but also I needed to prepare uh, for dying, you know, like through the Powa tradition. And so I was doing both of those things. And that was very profound, uh, both uh, doing prayers for healing and uh, doing comforting practices, but also uh, relinquishing attachment to uh, my body and uh, preparing to die. It was, it was actually quite wonderful. And so I, all that was in the context of hypnosis. So I, I could bring my whole life together and how I almost died. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. So next time, part four, we'll delve into all of that. Dr. Ian Wickramasekra, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.